Good evening. Will you guys turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2? <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit before I read it, but it'll be good for you guys to have that uh, in front of you when I get to it. Let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll get started. Father, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I heard a story a couple years ago that has stuck with me. And it's the story of a minister who, from the United Kingdom who uh, got a job as a chaplain for Oxford and Cambridge universities. And when he got that job, it was tricky. He didn't know exactly what his responsibility was going to be as the chaplain. And so he thought, what's the first thing I can do? Well, I'm going to start rounding up all of the incoming freshmen, and I'm just going to ask them to come into my office and sit down with me, and we'll talk. And I'll meet every single one of the up-and-coming freshmen. So he did that. One by one, the freshmen kind of filed into his office, and he said, I'm Reverend so-and-so, and I just wanted to introduce myself to you and just offer whatever spiritual service I could possibly offer to you and just let you know that I'm here. And he said that more and more he started getting uh, the same response, which was this. They would say, hey, thank you, Reverend. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. Thank you for calling me in here, but you probably won't be seeing very much of me because you see, I don't believe in God. And so he, because he heard this so often, he developed this kind of stock response to that statement, and he would say, after he heard what I just said, he would say, oh really, well what, what God is it that you don't believe in? What's the God that you don't believe in? And the students would invariably begin to kind of rattle off the attributes of this God that they didn't believe in, and it would go something like this, you know, the God that's up in the sky, looking down on earth, frustrated with everyone's personal defects and missteps, and the God who just generally looks down on earth in disapproval, the kind of, a kind of disappointed God. I don't believe in that God. And he heard that so often that he developed a response to that. And he would say, oh, well, yeah, actually, I don't believe in that God either. And he said that a sly and knowing smile would almost always creep over the student's face because it was rumored that even priests in Oxford and Cambridge didn't believe in God. And so they would laugh and say, oh, wow, like, you know, thank you for telling me. Okay. And he would say, no, 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 it's not that I don't believe in any God. It's just that I don't believe in the God that, you, that you've just described. I believe in a very specific God. I believe in God the Father of Jesus Christ, the God who sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. The God who loved the world so much that He would send His Son to die, and then the very God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the God that I believe in. And He would say, sometimes, you know, that, that wouldn't really make much difference to the student, and the conversation would end there, but sometimes it would open up another, another set of questions. But he said, invariably, 
what would happen, what he knew had happened after he had that conversation with them was this. He was just able to implant in their mind a vision of a very different God. Now, I'm fascinated. I heard that story years ago, and I've never forgotten it. It fascinates me. And it fascinates me for this reason. How is it that two people can be in the same room, can sit across the table from each other, talking about God, and yet be talking about two totally different people? How does something like that happen? How do we say the word God and think we know precisely what we mean, only to find that our, the person that we're talking about this with has a very different idea altogether? So, with that in mind, I want to do something really simple tonight. And I just want to ask the question, what does the age-old story of Good Friday tell us about God? Who is the God that writes the story of Good Friday? What kind of God would write that kind of story? Now, we didn't take the time tonight to read a longer um, passion narrative from one of the Gospels. We didn't read it. But I want to, if you don't mind, I want to tell you, again, the story of Good Friday just in bits and pieces. So the first Good Friday was April the 3rd, A.D. 33. And Tiberius was the emperor of Rome. And as far as Tiberius knew, everything was going on was ordinary in the empire. Babies were being born. People were getting married and given in marriage. People were tending to their work. All things were more or less normal. Except that it wasn't. Nothing was normal. This day was going to be both the darkest and the brightest, second brightest day, in human history. It provided the setting for the most horrific and unjust death that ever occurred, and yet never a death in all the world would bear so much life. In Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the whole earth, its author and its sustainer was to be put to death. Now, On the night before, April 3rd, on Thursday night, Jesus had been up all night in the garden praying, pouring out His heart to His Father, asking for His Father's plans to be altered at the last minute. He wanted His Father to pivot. He he was begging Him to rescue humanity in another way. And He was asking for Him to spare Him the pain He knew was coming. But He had friends there. And his friends he had asked to stay and watch with them and pray with them. But they had fallen asleep. And they're awoken by the sounds of voices and the sight of lanterns. And they see their brother, Judas Iscariot, betray their teacher, Jesus, with a kiss. And Peter, Jesus' disciple, is immediately enraged. He draws a sword and swipes to cut off one of the soldiers, Malchus' head. But he misses and chops off his ear instead. And as pain shoots through Malchus' face, he's surprised to feel the touch of the prisoner he was arresting. He was surprised to find that that prisoner was restoring his ear. The one whose body would be broken from head to toe managed the time and energy to give his enemy ears to hear. And Jesus is then led to the house of Annas, 
And then he's led to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they're rushing a trial against Jesus. They had to rush it because a verdict had to be reached before daybreak. But because everything had been rushed, the evidence didn't line up and the witnesses couldn't agree. So Caiaphas, furious, finally shouts, Just tell me, Jesus, are you the Christ? And Jesus, who up until this point hasn't said a word, says, You have said so. And so, just minutes before dawn, Judas Iscariot, the traitor, is hanging from a tree. Peter has denied Jesus three times, and the Son of God, the friend of sinners, the carpenter and the builder of the whole world, is judged to be guilty of the crime of blasphemy. And the sentence, of course, for the crime of blasphemy would be death. But there's a problem because the Jewish council who's been examining Jesus doesn't have the right to put anybody to death. The Romans wouldn't delegate the sentence of capital punishment. So, in an enormous game of political chess, Jesus bounces to Pilate, who, after initially finding Jesus innocent, is persuaded to execute him by the cruelest form of human torture, the cross. And God the Father has orchestrated it all to bring to light, to bring light to a world that's gradually descending deeper and deeper into darkness. Now it isn't long on the cross and Jesus gives up his spirit. He dies. And two men come to claim Jesus' body. Now interestingly, the two men that come to claim Jesus' body are not part of the band of disciples that Jesus has surrounded himself with. They're actually two men of the Jewish council that had been involved in charging Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and they take Jesus' body away. And thus ends the life and influence of Jesus of Nazareth. This man who wasn't of noble birth, who never held public office, who never traveled than a few miles from the town that he was born in, who had no followers except for people that came from the lowest part of society, is dead. And we know that nothing lasting comes from something like this. And surely this failed sort of half-Messiah has to be out of the scope and the work of the providence of God, right? But no. Somehow history has said something very different and has taken a different turn and it's March 25th, 2016 and we sit here 2,000 years later remembering that day that happened that long ago and saying something very different happened. Although the external circumstances of that day looked so quotidian and ordinary, it was that very day that God used to rescue the whole world. And so, but if that's true, how do we go back and answer the minister's question at the very beginning of the sermon? Maybe we don't ask, what God don't we believe in? But if this really is God, this Jesus that died that day through a rush trial and a bunch of mockery, if that's really God, what does that say about who God is. Could it really be true that God is like Jesus, this Jesus? Is it true that this is the only God that there is? Well, Paul has an answer for that, and that's in Philippians chapter 2. 
I'll read it quickly and say a few words about it. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The motivation that Paul has to pen just these few verses is the relational flourishing of the Philippians. He's prodding the Philippians toward lives of deep humility. He doesn't want rivalry to infest their lives. He wants love to be the theme that inspires them to the point that people are taking their own personal interests as subordinate to the interests of others. But this flies in the face of human nature, and Paul knows it. And so he has to ground that command in something that is everlasting. He has to ground it in an eternal reality, one written into the relationship of the Trinity. Sin is so pervasive and so cancerous, and so insidious, and the resentments and rivalry rivalry that we feel are so deep that nothing's going to change that unless God Himself, the Creator of the world, bears the identity and vocation that Paul is so eager for the Philippians to live out. But that's the point. Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now there's something kind of funny going on with that word though in the phrase though he was in the form of God. It can be translated that way, though. The word though can be translated as though, signaling Jesus' willingness to lay down his status for the sake of his people. That's of course entirely appropriate and makes sense. But there could be something else there too. You could also translate that word because. That is, because Jesus was in, the, was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because Jesus, because, because He knew He was God, because He was so secure in His identity in God, He acted like God, which is to act as a creator so zealous to reach a broken world. He bends, he stoops, he suffers unspeakable atrocities. He absorbs the violence the world blindly afflicts on him in order to jar them out of their sleep and present them with the most shocking and appalling vision of divinity we could ever have. And that's a vision of divinity. That's a God that would willingly be crucified a cruciform God. And Paul knew that changed everything. And it forever will. It forever alters our witness. Doesn't that vision of God break the back of the religious triumphalism that all of us have grown to find so obnoxious 
and move us into a cruciform and humble service of the world. Doesn't that just really simply give us a new story to tell our unbelieving friends? The God who is and the God who created the whole world doesn't look down on it with cliché disapproval, but with deep mercy to the extent that He suffered for it. God the Father, if God, we asked this question a couple weeks ago, could God be like Jesus? Could God actually be like Jesus? We know that Jesus is God, but can you ask the question another way? Could God be like Jesus? And if God is like Jesus, then He's a God that calls us away from striking people in order to protect Him. If God is like Jesus, He's a God who calls us away from religious councils that ignore and finally persecute innocent people that come in the name and the way of the gospel of peace. If God is like Jesus, He calls us away from the political expediency of Pilate playing games in order that our personal power wouldn't erode. This day was a deeply, deeply dark and difficult day for Jesus. And maybe it signals for us the alienation we all certainly receive at one time or another for the sake of the kingdom. But I think it gives us a story that's so beautiful that we can restore restore, and restore the world. There's a sermon that I love, and it's a sermon from the 20th century. I think it's a famous sermon, maybe. I don't know. It's on YouTube. I don't know if that makes it famous, but it is to me. I've listened to it a lot, and it's by a man named Dr. Uh, S.M. Lockridge. And just as a matter of trivia, S.M. stands for Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. And so advice for parents, if you do not want your children to enter the clergy, do not name them Shadrach Meshach because you have isolated them. That's the only vocational path they can take after that. But it's a sto- it's the sermon, what he's trying to do in the sermon is to take a step back and tell the story of Good Friday, kind of like I did at the beginning. But he's doing it with his unbelievable ability to do that with rhetorical power and affect. And he starts it this way. He says, it's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world is winning. People are sinning. And the devil it's grinning, is grinning. It's Friday. They nail my Jesus' hands to the cross. They nail His feet to the cross. They lift Him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But I can tell you that Sunday's coming. And that paints the picture that that shows what happens here. This moment that sin seemed to have won, that hope was lost, that redemption was just a pipe dream, but God is different than you and me, and His ways are higher 
than mine and yours, and the glory of Easter would be lost without the gloom of this day. But here we are, and maybe you say, that's fine. I mean, I know, I'm glad, I know Sunday finally came around for Jesus, but I'm not sure it's ever going to come around for me. I mean, it's Friday, and the violence in this world seems insurmountable, and our sin burdens us beyond what we can bear. Our relationships feel weak. Our faith feels like it's teetering over the precipice of unbelief. We're stricken by addictions. We return to old sins like a dog returns to its vomit. But Sunday is coming, Christian, and it's coming for you. And the way that I know that is that the God that we serve is not the God of the philosophers. He's not distant. He's not an abstraction. He's here tonight and He's the one who bends low and stoops to reach and repair Malchus's ear. He bent low and subjected Himself to the cross and He's here to bring His sufferings to bear to this church to break light into a world of darkness. Our God is a God crucified, absorbing your sins and drawing you into eternal union with His suffering Son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for that truth that we don't need to worry that You're distant somewhere off where we can't find You looking down on us with disapproval You look towards us with mercy, and you look towards us with love, and we thank you for that. Father, will you give us a heart this weekend to treasure and cherish the suffering that you had on our behalf, and will you give us joy as we look towards Easter? In your name we pray. Amen.